we have a uh, what I think is a very beautiful <clears throat> tradition here at the Forest Refuge of chanting the refuges and precepts before talks. And if they're not familiar to you, there are some copies, uh, sheets out in the coat room if you want to grab one of those. And of course it's not um, required But I think it's really important to know what we're doing if we do chant them and know what we're not chanting if we don't chant them. Because the whole of the teachings, everything rests on this orientation around non-harming. And so to really uh, feel into it. And hopefully, in my mind, it brings some... Yeah, reflecting on having a relationship with ethical conduct, orienting our our life, our mind, our heart around non-harming, knowing that we can't be perfect in this. We cannot live and avoid all harm. But we look at our intention. And and to me, it, it uplifts the heart. It brings happiness and joy, actually, to reflect on it. So I hope there's some quality of that for you. And I believe there are at least one or two people who are on the eight precepts. Is that correct? So we'll chant um, the all eight of them. So feeling into some connection to this one way or another, whether you chant or not. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang saranangha chami. Dhammang saranang chami, Sangang saranang chami, Dutiampi buddhang saranang chami, Dutiampi dhammang saranang chami, Dutiampi sangang saranang chami. Tatiampi budang saranangga chami. Tatiampi dhammang saranangga chami. Tatiampi sanghang saranangga chami. Panati pata ue ramani sikapadang samadhyami. Adina dana ue ramani Sika padang samadhyami, Abrahmacharya we ramani. Sika padang samadhyami, Musawada we ramani. Sika padang samadhyami, 
Suramiraya Majapamadatana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanathana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Ujjasayana Mahasayana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idame silam magapalanyanasa pachayo otu sadu sadu sadu. <clears throat> I have a feeling did I do the adinadana twice and forget the panatipata? Anyone notice? Anyway, if I did, we'll consider it that I did it right. <laughs> Once in a while, the, the little brainy skips. <laughs> I was struck um, a little bit earlier. I had the thought came into my mind that there was a an elegance to the Buddha's teachings and sometimes a deep simplicity there that I find quite profound and beautiful. And one way we could see this was, is, or touch into this is then this uh, deceptively simple statement that the Buddha once made. He said, now and before I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And this is, kind of shorthand for the the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. You could see it that way. But it takes us to the really heart of, of what we're doing in meditation in this practice as we walk this path. And really everything that the Buddha taught in all of the discourses over many years and many volumes of those that have been collected, they're really... Um, an exploration and augmentation of this simple teaching, suffering and the end of suffering. And so to realize the end of suffering, we have to first even notice that it's there, understand its nature. Through that exploration, start to see what its cause is and therefore what might lead to the end of suffering. And so this means having a relationship to and a, an exploration of uh, what is called dukkha in Pali. And I'm sure that the word dukkha is very familiar to everyone in this hall. Is there anyone who is hearing the word dukkha for the first time tonight? It's possible. Oh, I don't want to make assumptions here. But it gets used a lot in places like... Uh, IMS and the forest refuge is part of IMS. You know, it gets tossed around regularly and gets used so much in 
in a way that it may be that the true depth and meaning of this word may get a little lost or glossed over sometimes or or possibly even trivialized as though you know anything painful or a drag is dukkha and we say oh dukkha you know because something went wrong or or whatever it gets used a lot and and there's nothing wrong with that there's a a reality there but it can also tend to diminish the the importance and the power of of the word and what it points to and that word is most commonly translated as suffering and that has a certain value certain use to think of it that way but it doesn't begin to capture the full depth and breadth of what this word actually means it's really a crucial poly term and and there are a number of we find this often in translations from poly that will have a word that uh, gets translated to one word in english that there just is no english equivalent maybe in other languages there is but dukkha points to a, a depth and breadth of insecurity that informs our lives constantly, informs the lives of all beings constantly. It's an aspect of what we might think of as the human condition, and it's woven into the fabric of our lives, our existence. Complete, it's woven in there on all levels. And it often goes unseen, certainly out in the, the busy world that isn't a place like this. They're not out there talking about dukkha right now very much. And, and it's, it's unseen, but its impact in the lives of beings is profound. And so a practical and meaningful working relationship with this this understanding, the understandings related to dukkha is essential. There's a teacher, some of you, I'm sure, most, many of you are familiar with, named Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He goes by Tan Jeff. He lives uh, in a monastery called Wat Metta in Southern California. And uh, he once said, no single English word adequately captures the full depth, range, and subtlety of the crucial polyterm dukkha. Many translations of the word have been used, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and so forth. Each has its own merits in a given context. There is value in not letting oneself get too comfortable with any one particular translation of the word, since the entire thrust of Buddhist practice is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha until its roots are finally exposed and eradicated once and for all. So that goes to that that statement that I I began with of the Buddha. I teach one thing only, suffering, the end of suffering. You know, that's a powerful statement. The entire thrust of the teachings is related to broadening and deepening our understanding of dukkha. So it's worth some investigation on a regular basis, I think, probably. Because our our understanding of what it points to becomes more and more subtle and is there are layers to this that are uh, revealed as we explore it.
So we can understand dukkha in different ways. And perhaps that's why so many words have been used to uh, define it. Maybe you could say on different levels. So the most obvious way that dukkha shows up in our lives is in terms of pain and painful, unpleasant feelings associated with having a mind and a body. Bodily life, for example, and the processes of birth, aging, illness, and death have unpleasantness there. Some of the time it's woven into that. It also, um, on this level, dukkha is, is painful situations that may not involve physical discomfort, not necessarily related to unpleasant physical sensations, but um, difficult experiences that do come in life and, that, and the um, this stressful, problematic mind states, emotional states, mental states that accompany them. So dukkha on that level. So the, the fact that if we have in a mind and a body, sometimes it's unpleasant or painful or difficult, stressful. But a more subtle understanding of this term dukkha relates to qualities of unreliability or insecurity. Sometimes I think of it as a kind of fragility or vulnerability that is inherent, intrinsic to all conditioned experience to our lives in the conditioned realm, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. So dukkha on this level applies to pleasant, sublime, beautiful experiences also. And it's a kind of subtle or not so subtle inner anxiety produced by constant change and the fact that pleasant experiences don't last, for example. So there's an instability there, an unreliability. So the most sublime, beautiful experience we might have is great. I wish you to have lots of them over the course of your stay here. May it happen, but... They are, dukkha is present in those experiences due to the fact that they don't last. So they're unreliable in that we cannot latch onto them as a, as a source of our lasting happiness. They just don't last. So there's, they're not dependable. They're not reliable. doesn't mean they're not great. But there's a fragility there. Miku Bodhi says this, Dukkha throws before our awareness in a way we cannot evade the vast gulf stretching between our ingrained expectations and the possibilities for their fulfillment in a world never fully susceptible to domination by our wills. So he has a particularly he has a particular way of using language that's a little thick maybe at times. But he's basically saying We can't make it be the way we want it to be all the time. We're not in control. But I love this thing. It throws before our awareness in a way we cannot evade the vast gulf. There's a vast gulf between how we want it to be and how it is. And we aren't in charge of it. But we think we should be. And our conditioning around this is really strong that somehow we should be able to get our lives to the point where things are only the way we want them to be. 
and they would always then probably be pleasant. Most of us would vote for that. You know, as though somehow the the sense and the the feeling and the images in, in some TV commercials should be, you know, sort of our ongoing experience. You know, and the people in the commercials, they're really happy. And they're really good looking, usually. And and the sense that that should be how it is all the time, and that somehow, if it's not that way, we've blown it somehow. And this, so it, it, it leads us to take the truth of dukkha personally, as though somehow it is our fault that it isn't like that. That somehow it's evidence of our personal failure or lacking or, or something. And, and you know, we, we are, no matter what, going to get the range of joys and sorrows and pleasures and pains and successes and failures and all those worldly conditions. Those are there. They're a given. And it's not that we're completely without any agency in this regard. We do our best to live with grace and integrity and to bring goodness forward into the world through our actions of body, speech, and mind. So this, this understanding doesn't, lead to, doesn't have to lead to some state of resignation or defeat. But we have to be real about it. Now, the Buddha came to a key understanding in his exploration of, of the human condition, trying to figure out what's going on here. And what he saw was that stress, struggle, suffering, agitation in the mind and heart related to this pervasive unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness, this fragility, is born in the mind and arises out of how we're relating to that truth. This ongoing rub between the way we want things to be, wanting them to be a certain way, and the tension and stress between that and the way it is. And this is not to deny or in any way diminish the very real suffering that exists for many beings in the world and the truths of poverty and Injustice and oppression are all too real. And the simple truth is that sometimes life is hard. And some people do seem to get more than their fair share of difficult stuff in life. But if we do look, and we'll see that a lot of our stress and struggle, mental agitation does arise has its genesis in the mind and is the result of our attempts to control experience, to either deny the way it is or to try to control it and get it to be only the way we want it to be and then stay that way somehow. And, you know, as I'm talking about this, it's it probably seems so obvious. You know, it's not com- complicated but it runs counter to the conditioning that we live within <laughs> so much of the time and the way that we tend to look at things because we are really conditioned to look outside ourselves for both the source of our struggles and suffering and the solution to them. 
that conditioning is really, really strong. But this this mm, understanding that the Buddha came to, that the, the genesis of so much of our struggle and stress in life is born in our mind, is really good news. Because then we have a chance to try to do something about it. Because if, if it was entirely the result of our external conditions, then we would be very limited in what we could do to find anything remotely in the terrain of the release of suffering. Because the world is never fully susceptible to domination by our wills. As Bhikkhu Bodhi said. So if we open to this reality of this, to the truth of this unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness, to dukkha and bring an understanding to that, that it's how we relate to that. That's the arena where we can find suffering or non-suffering peace or the lack of peace. If we start there, it radically transforms. It's a radical transformation of our view and an orientation. You know, these teachings and this practice, they are truly radical. They were radical almost 2,600 years ago when the Buddha was walking around teaching in northern India, excuse me. And they're radical now. So this is where we start. This is where the Buddha started. Because until we open to this truth, we're always going to be looking for a way out and always turning to that which by its very nature is inherently unreliable and ultimately incapable of bringing us any kind of lasting happiness. And it's, it's an endless shirt and it, search and it's um, doomed to frustration and failure. But if we skillfully open, really truly open in a real way to the truth of dukkha, then it leads us to seek a reliable path, one that might actually lead us to a place of refuge and ultimately to the deepest kind of happiness and to peace. And because since this key to this freedom is found within our own mind and heart, then we can learn a new way of being, a new way of relating to our experience to find ease and balance in our mind and heart and a kind of freedom that is um, right within the truth of change, directly related to it, but not so not dependent on the conditions we encounter. There's a teaching that is directly related to this process of this broadening and deepening of our understanding of dukkha that um, is interesting. It's The teaching is that skillfully opening to dukkha is seen as a cause for the arising of faith, confidence, trust. And the Pali, there's another one of these Pali words that maybe not one English word quite does it, sadha. We often translate it as faith, but the way faith is often used, certainly in, in certain 
context is not what this points to. This is a, a trust or confidence that is born of one's direct experience and one's own understanding. It is not the taking on of a belief, which is the way faith is often used. Sada. It's that which upholds or supports our confidence or faith, trust. It's been equated with um, a, a place that's safe to rest one's heart, which is kind of a lovely image, like a safe harbor. So a kind of real refuge, you could say. And if we can find something like this, a safe place to rest our heart, it opens us to a kind of spaciousness where we're able to hold, actually be with life's changes. This inevitable movement from pleasure to pain and joy and sorrow with some balance. And we we are able to touch a deep kind of happiness that is essentially independent of the outer conditions we encounter and is not easily buffeted about by the winds of change that are always blowing through our lives. Now, why would opening to dukkha be a causative factor for the arising of faith? Maybe this is obvious to you, but it sounds almost counterintuitive in some ways. Ajahn Chah once said something that I think touches onto it, at least an initial aspect of, of how this would work in his usual kind of simple, direct, pithy way. He said, so Ajahn Chah, Thai forest master, most of you have heard of, I'm sure. He said, in Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. So this is, again, this profound shift of focus with a a different strategy in life. The suggestion here being that rather than struggling with fighting against the way things are and either trying to control that which was never controllable, not fully susceptible to our will or falling into despair because the the way is blocked, the road is blocked, we look for a, a way we open to this reality and we seek a way around it, a way through, how to make a pathway not a way out of it, the way is through always So skillfully opening to dukkha can lead us to this quality of sata, to trust, confidence. I'll use the word faith. Because we let go of fighting against the way things are. We address what one of my colleagues calls our issues with reality. And start looking for a way that might actually work. Because struggle doesn't work. You know, we we don't stop trying very easily, but at some point it dawns up on us that this isn't working. It's just making us tense and tight 
and unhappy. But still opening to dukkha, that in and of itself is not not quite enough. So again, from bhikkhu bodhi, for faith to arise, two conditions are required. The first is the awareness of suffering, which makes us recognize the need for a liberative path. And the second is an encounter with a teaching that proclaims a liberative path. So we have to open to dukkha, but then we need to hear or see or come in contact with something that that seems to point, oh, there actually is a way to make a path to deal with this roadblock. So if opening to dukkha is going to lead to the kind of confidence where we, we launch ourselves out into what at first may feel like the unknown, something brand new and unexplored. We need something to draw on for some strength, courage, something that feels trustworthy, at least trustworthy enough to begin. There's a story many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. It It comes from the time not that long after the Buddha was living in India. And it's the story of... Uh, Um, a a king, a ruler named Ashoka. And he managed through conquering (laughs) to rule almost the entire Indian subcontinent from about 268 to 232 BCE. And in his early years, he is said to have been extremely greedy rather bloodthirsty and ruled by an insatiable insatiable desire to expand his kingdom and a desire for power and um, influence over everything, (laughs) basically. And he, he, so he expanded his kingdom through aggression, war. And uh, he's also said to have been very unhappy. And you know, There are lots of examples of this kind of thing over the course of history. But apparently after one particularly bloody battle that was the result of his his movements of conquest in an area called Kalinga, I'm not sure what part of India that was, but apparently something when he was he was somewhere maybe on a high point, and he was surveying this battlefield and he was actually shocked and deeply moved by the death and destruction that he saw. And while he was looking out and, and you know, really moved by, by this, he saw a Buddhist monk making his way along through that area. And the monk seemed to have this had this air of calm and peace and seemed to radiate a kind of serenity and ease, even in this area of really, really tragedy and you know death and destruction. And uh, Ashoka wondered um, what was going on. And, and there's not, the implication isn't that if the monk was so detached, he didn't notice or feel anything, didn't see what was going on or just didn't care. That's not the implication there. It's rather that he was 
possessed of qualities of equanimity and wisdom and a deep understanding of cause and effect and the conditioned nature of things. He saw, okay, yeah, this this bloodthirsty, aggressive mind state and this insatiable desire when unleashed leads leads to this. And so Ashoka saw this person walking along and and he wondered how could someone who had so little, because then as now in this tradition, people who undertake the life of a, a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, they own two things, a set of robes and a bowl. You know, they're alms mendicants. So he had almost nothing, but he seemed really happy, contented, at ease, peaceful. And, and Ashoka had everything he could want materially and vast power and you know, influence over pretty much all of India at that point. And he, he wondered, um, why am I unhappy? I have got everything and this person has nothing. And so he uh, was clearly contacting Dukkha <laughs> Ashoka, both on the level of the, the pain and suffering he had caused by these, starting these wars and this unsatisfactoriness because it didn't make him happy. <laughs> he wasn't happy. <laughs> didn't work as a strategy for being happy. And so he followed this monk and he asked him what was going on. And he received some teachings and it completely transformed his life. And after that point, he is said to have become a very just and kind ruler. And there are, there are um, stories of, of things that he did. You know, he, he dug wells along roads and paths so there would be water for people who were traveling and planted trees and areas where medicinal plants. And um, he prohibited animal sacrifice, which was highly practiced then uh, by some some traditions and he built hospitals and schools and um, practiced religious tolerance and you know, a lot of good stuff really transformed. There are um, to this day, and if you have traveled in India, there are still Ashoka pillars around They're stone pillars and the, the image on the top of, of these lions facing in four directions, I believe. And uh, it's actually that symbol is on the Indian flag as well. And, and you know, there are still signs of, of when this was a real thing. <laughs> this, this happened and these pillars were erected. I think they, I'm not sure if, if what they were proclaiming, uh, but it may have been, you know, here's a good place to, to come and have, have good things. <laughs> I don't know. But all this transformation all arose out of seeing this one being who radiated this sense of peace and ease and contentment and a kind of confidence. And the, the monk wasn't, had no agenda. He was just trying to get to where he was going. He wasn't trying to convert Ashoka or persuade him or, or change him in any way. He was just walking along. And there was nothing special except in his very being and this direct expression of a kind of radiant happiness and ease and contentment. 
and it pointed to a possibility. And Ashoka at that moment was able to actually see it. So there's an example of of seeing something that points to a possibility. So opening to dukkha, but then actually seeing, oh, there's there's something that might lead to the end of struggle, stress, suffering. And so this being, this monk in this case, he he manifested a very different kind of happiness than Ashoka had ever even considered. It was not the fleeting happiness of of transient conditions or momentary pleasures. You know, something that's unreliable that can't provide any kind of real happiness. It was some other thing entirely, some completely other thing. And it points to this um, quality of peace, of wholeness, using all kinds of different words, that um, is part of the, the very being, of one's very being, an expression of deep understanding. And it becomes, in the case like this, as it's developed, it becomes this natural radiation into the world, like a gift. The monk gave Ashoka an incredible gift just by being there. And it had this, you know, it's amazing what one thing and then what, what my, one mind is capable of. One mind can, can cause so much devastation and destruction and it can cause so much goodness. You know, the power of the mind is incredible, isn't it? not to be taken for granted. But the Buddha was pointing to this kind of happiness as our potential, not reserved to a special few beings. We have a body and a mind. And he said, if it were not possible for you to do it, I wouldn't ask you to try. But it is, so I ask you to try. And so this quality of mindfulness, of awareness, I tend to use those terms interchangeably and I'm hearing myself use awareness more lately because of conditions in the world or I'll put them together and say mindful awareness. So if you hear me using those words, I'm pointing to the same thing. This quality of mindfulness, let's check it right now. You can ask yourself, is there awareness? which is a very useful question to ask once in a while because the answer is always yes. So it's very affirming because if there's enough presence of mind to look and see if there's awareness, it's guaranteed to be there. And it's so simple and it's a complete game changer. And it can shift our view and vision and how we're relating to the world in any moment and point us towards a kind of refuge, a safe place to rest our heart that is independent of the external conditions in the world. This is no small thing. And we start to see that this awareness can actually meet and hold anything that arises. There's nothing we cannot be mindful of. That is good news. 
And there's nothing that arises that cannot serve as a vehicle for insight to arise. Also good news, really good news. And perhaps the ultimate fulfillment of the potential of it is not here yet, but the, poten- the potential for that is here. Maybe its ultimate realization has not arrived, but it constantly is pointing in that direction. It's been said that the mind or the mind heart, the chitta, will be filled with qualities like wisdom and compassion one moment, one drop at a time. It's like a vessel that one is filling, like a big clay jar. You can kind of think of every moment of mindfulness, every moment of loving kindness, of awareness, like a drop going into this vessel. And we can't see how full it is. And it's going to look the same, whether it's just a few drops collected in the bottom or it's almost full to spill over. And our job is to put in the drops. And we can do that every time we remember. That's a, I think it's a great image. It's like, oh, okay, there's another drop in my jar. And we empower ourselves to do this. And that's the arena of this quality of sadha, faith, confidence. That says, yeah, I'm going to do that. Put in that next drop. You know, we can't make something happen. We can't will the mind to open. We can't will ourselves to enlightenment or freedom. But we can put in the next drop. And in the moment of doing it, we can find this quality of of joy and rest and peace and contentment right there. So we don't have to wait. It's possible in any moment to touch into some quality of that. And, and sometimes it shows up at times and in ways that, that are surprising for us. I remember being struck by this the first time I sat a, a long retreat. It was a three-month retreat next door at the IMS Retreat Center. And I'd only been meditating for a short time, a few months. And uh, I had gone to a 10-day long retreat to learn how to meditate. I went there not having, having never meditated at all. And uh, my dear friend, Carol Wilson, happened to be one of the teachers, and she mentioned this place, IMS, which I'd never heard of, and that there was a three-month retreat. And I decided by the end of that 10-day retreat that I wanted to just come here and do that. But I didn't qualify. I had to do another retreat in between to, to, for them to let me in. This is a long, long time ago now. And I remember sitting on, I was, so I came and I was sitting that three-month retreat, and I remember one time I was sitting in the dining room. Maybe I decided to have a cup of tea or something, but I remember just sitting there at one of the tables, not during a mealtime, and and I just felt so contented in a way I had never felt in my life. I don't think I'd ever felt it. Maybe there were times when I was young, perhaps. But I hadn't felt in a long time, certainly, and maybe never at all. And it was 
There was no good reason. Happy for no reason. Boy, that's the best kind. No good reason. It's just like, I was so content. I remember just loving, what I loved the most was being able to live with that much care, with that much mindfulness. That was what I loved the most about being on retreat. And that was the the source of the contentment was just that right there. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just, you know, bumbling along. Never really known what I'm doing. And so, you know, I just remembered noticing that and thinking, wow, that's incredible. It seemed, it wasn't because of the, ex- I mean, you know, it's, it's, it is peaceful in these places, but where is the peace? Okay, it's quiet and we're removed from a lot of the wild, crazy stuff going on in the world when we come here, but... Where is the peace? The conditions are great, but the peace is inside. The peace is internal. So this radiant um, expression of this deep contentment and peacefulness embodied by the monk in the story of Ashoka that I told is on one level, you could say reflecting the culmination of the Buddha's path, but that quality of contentment is threaded throughout the practice. We can touch into it throughout the practice in the beginning, the middle, the end. And it can be touched right in the moment of a, a moment of pure mindfulness. A moment of pure mindfulness is full and complete. There's nothing missing Nothing to get, nothing to get rid of. Nowhere to go, no one to be. And this is a possibility in in any moment. Maybe you can feel it right now. And it's not because of what's happening or what, what is the object of the awareness. That doesn't, it's not about that. It's because we're resting in the truth of the way it is. And we're really there for it. And we release so much stress and agitation and struggle in that moment. At least that's possible. And we begin to trust this quality of awareness more than the passing show of changing experience. It's way more reliable. We see that 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 awareness is not affected by what is known. The awareness of fear is not afraid. The awareness of anger is not angry. The awareness of joy is not joyful. But it knows joy for what it is. These are some words from uh, another Thai forest monk, Ajahn Phuong Jyotiko. It's from a book called Awareness Itself. You just have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions and the conventions it holds to be true. So you focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. 
If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. So he's pointing to the way that mindfulness can lead us to an even deeper place of refuge, an unshakable place of rest. And we start to touch into this possibility and then we find this ongoing refuge in moments along the way. And there is this possibility of contentment, joy, and happiness every step as we walk this path. And it's born of this intimacy with life. It embraces and is connected to the way things are. It stands, it takes its stand on reality. And it arises out of the angle of our view and vision and how we're relating to experience in any moment. So it's always a possibility. That is very cool. And it profoundly impacts our lives. And there's a possibility that wisdom can arise and it arises on its own. We don't have to find it and drag it out. It'll come. Clear seeing comes. Our actions can then arise out of wisdom and compassion that can be full and effective, infused with tenderness, goodwill, the wish for all beings to be happy and free of suffering. And so through this process, an exploration of opening to and exploring dukkha, and the truth of dukkha, This is how it is transformed into a noble truth. It's noble because it leads to the end of suffering. It leads us to the fulfillment of the Buddha's path, to a freedom that is a kind of independence, not disconnection, but that is not dependent on worldly conditions. So we can uh, sit quietly here, just resting simply in connection to the way it is right now. Let these words drift away. So thank you for your kind attention.
And we have another tradition here, which I really love, which is chanting uh, what is what is called here. We tend to call it the verses. What are they called? Uh, the sharing of blessings. Um, I think it's possibly is it on the reverse side of the precepts chant. I learned this chant um, at least thirty years ago, more than that now probably. And uh, I learned it as the verses of sharing and aspiration. And there's a little intro to it. So I'm going to chant that and then we can all chant it together. Hopefully some of you know it well. And uh, forgive me if I do it at all differently. It may have evolved over the decades. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.